You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Surf Splendor. Today's episode is part two in our five-part series highlighting iconic surf shops in Southern California. Today's conversation is with Bing Copeland of Bing Surfboards, who just celebrated their 60th year in business. Imagine that. This series was prompted by the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, whom I utilize as a resource for research, and they also provide studio space for me to record podcasts. So this Friday, August 6th, they are launching an exhibit entitled Temples of Stoke, a celebration of surf shop culture. They've invited 25 iconic surf shops in California to install shrines of photos, memorabilia, artifacts, all that tell a story of their shop and the role that it plays in their respective California beach town. Hobie Alter once said, quote, a great surf shop is a social and cultural hub for surfers, a place to hang out, check out boards, brag about great waves or new spots, and laugh about a horrendous wipeout. And that's kind of why Shaq is doing this exhibit, is um, the idea of a surf shop being a social and cultural hub for surfers is kind of threatened um, with, you know, due to a lot of the reasons that retail is threatened as a whole. But, you know, there's just a lot of um, larger box surf shops now as well that contend with, quote, core surf shops. And those larger box surf shops don't necessarily have um, surfers working in them, you know, who can educate about etiquette in the water or where the waves are good or what sandbar is happening and or the conversations that have just kind of taken place in surf shops of my youth, certainly surf shops of yesteryear. So I'll be publishing this series of episodes every other week. For the next couple of months through the duration of this temples of stoke exhibit at shack part one with tk brimer of the frog house in newport beach was uh published two weeks ago and i've gotten nothing but rave feedback about tk and a dozen people or so sent in stories uh personal stories about shopping at the frog house one of which i will read to you now from a listener named doug he said quote The Frog House was my go-to shop in the 70s. Spent many hours hanging there with my young son. My wife just reminded me that he learned the F word there as a three-year-old. Whoops. I'd usually bring a six-pack on a Friday afternoon and we'd have some beer. I was in the shop one day when some lowlives grabbed four or five brand new boards off the racks and made a run for it. TK and I jumped in my car and we gave chase. We were doing 80 miles an hour down Brookhurst until we lost him. Thanks for the interview. Brought back some really good memories. Thanks for that, Doug. Um, I'm sure plenty of more will come in through this series. If you have something that you'd like to share, you could do it in the comments section on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And then, of course, go to shack.org. That's S-H-A-C-C.org to learn more about their Temples of Stoke exhibit opening this Friday, August 9th. It is open to the public. And in regard to today's show... 
born Herbert Bingham Copeland in 1936 in the Los Angeles County oceanfront suburb of Torrance. Bing began surfing at the age of 13 with future big wave icon Greg Knoll. Copeland and Knoll both learned how to make surfboards from American board manufacturing pioneer Dale Velzi. In September 1959, Copeland opened Bing Surfboards on the Hermosa Beach waterfront and went on to become one of the most popular board makers of the decade. Surfer shaper Donald Takayama was an early Bing team rider. Shaper Dick Brewer produced the Bing Pipeliner model in 1967. The most famous Bing Surfboards team rider was Hawaiian-born David Nueva, who fixed his name on two hot-selling Bing models, the Nose Rider and the Lightweight. The late 1960s shortboard revolution was disastrous for all well-established surfboard manufacturers, as a lot of surfers started buying boards from, quote, backyard surfboard builders who were quick to adapt their designs to these shorter boards, often just kind of cutting them down from used longboards. And that played a partial role in Bing's decision to relocate to Idaho, where he still lives to this day. All of this is discussed in full detail in our conversation, along with how he was able to keep the brand alive during that time, Bing's strategy to include Matt Calvani into the Bing legacy, and we cover much, much more. Thank you to Matt Warshaw and his Encyclopedia of Surfing for some of those dates and details. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Bing Copeland. By the devil's in the alley, mules in the stall. Say anything you want to, I have heard it all. I was thinking about the things that Rosie's head. I was dreaming I was sleeping in Rosie's bed. Walking through the leaves, falling from the trees, feeling like a stranger nobody sees. So many things that we never will undo. I know you're sorry, I'm sorry too. Some people will offer you their hand and some will Congratulations on 60 years. Thank you. First of all, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if you add the fact that I started when I was 23 years old and you add that to 60 years, it makes me 83 years old. So It's wild. Still, <laughs> Here I am. Still um, kicking, though. I mean, still kicking, high energy. I'm not surfing anymore. I quit at 75. Oh, did you really? Yeah. How was that? Was that difficult for you? Well, it got difficult. You know, it got to be where it really wasn't fun. Actually, I was surfing in uh, in Baja in warm water for the last, you know, 10 years of my surfing uh, career. And uh, it was fine. You know, I enjoyed it. But then it just got to where I was having trouble getting to my feet. I ended up doing a lot of belly sliding, which was really a lot of fun. Sure. And, uh, and, uh, and I had some back surgery when I was around 72, 73, and uh, it affected my my nerves and my legs. Gotcha. So uh, it, it, I just, it got where I couldn't do it, and it wasn't fun. I, you know, it wasn't fun. I remember my very last wave. Do you really? I really do, yeah. What I got it? out of the water saying, that's it. Really? Yeah. 
you had been contemplating maybe well, stopping? I've been thinking and... about it, yeah. But, but with this wave, you know, it was a n- nice little uh, spot in Baja, just a, a nice little left and right, and it was a beach break kind of a thing. And, and I was... Uh, I was belly sliding this wave, and it was a fun wave. It was like it was overhead because I was laying down. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and I, I was got to the shore break, and there were some rocks on the beach, and I thought, well, I better do an island pull out and pull a nose through and get out of this wave. And it it I couldn't I couldn't bury it, so I washed up on the beach. The nose kind of broke off, and the board was all banged up, and my knees were banged up, and I went, you know, this is a good time to quit. Got it. So it became a threat <laughs> to your health, kind of. Surfing. Well. Perhaps it just no. You couldn't physically. Well, for a long time, I couldn't do what I did when I was younger. But yeah. uh, I couldn't have fun anymore. When it wasn't fun anymore, that's when it's time to quit. See, it's interesting because you almost think of surfing as being um, a fountain of youth. Like it, it actually is restorative rather than exactly. How, you know, and I constantly talk to guys, and they say, "Oh, I'm never going to quit surfing. I'm never going to quit surfing." And I know better. <laughs> they are. Yeah. They yeah. will. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. day will come. I said the same thing when I was in my 30s and sure. 40s. You know, uh, I'm never going to quit this sport. But you know, when it's time, when it's time to hang it up, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you miss about it? Oh, I miss a lot about it. I, you know, I miss the thrill of shooting through a section and and uh, and sitting around chatting with your friends, uh, BSing, I guess we call it. Um, uh, yeah, I miss all that. I feel like, um, as I've gotten older, surfing has taken on a lot of different meaning for me. And now when I was young, it was strictly the act of riding the wave was all I cared about. And specifically progress was what I cared about. So if I didn't surf better today than yesterday, I left the water angry, actually, which is really silly. Which which is not good. (laughs) No, exactly. And so now I've seen the error of my ways and, uh. I find now, you know, hanging out, BSing with my friends in the yeah. parking lot when I get to the beach yeah. has kind of now been folded into the surf experience. It's all part of it, yeah. And even if I don't actually paddle out, like maybe the waves are terrible. And Windy we just... or something, yeah. Right. Yeah. I still feel like I surfed today, quote unquote, <laughs> because I just went through the ritual. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah. surfing has become, or, or kind of more uh, accurately, if I do paddle out, being in the water is part of surfing. Yeah. Feeling the sun is part of surfing. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Um, and I don't have to necessarily perform better or almost don't even have to catch a wave. Just kind of going through yeah. it is part yeah. of surfing. So that's why I'm asking you about like, what do you miss about it? Because you can still kind of have a lot of the experience sure. without the yeah. actual yeah. wave riding. Well, itself. I've done that too. Yeah. Once I once I quit, I would still go down to the beach with okay. the guys and I would hang out on the beach when they were out surfing. I just decided not to go out anymore right you know i'd go in the water and swim around a little bit and stuff but but i i was done surfing yeah i knew when i I knew when it was time and i've talked to some other i have friends uh, hap jacobs and and uh and john mcfarland who are both like four years older than i am and and they said the same thing you know that's they 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 realized when it was time to give it up right yeah right um i want to touch on the 60 year detail. I mean, we'll get into the origin story and kind of recount some of the early days, but we can't not acknowledge 60 years is a tremendous amount of time for a business to survive, to be around in this modern day. I mean, well, I, I I have been around that long. However, there was a dip in it in the, 
in the mid 70s when the board, short boards came in and and the drug and hippie era and uh, the the volume you know I had a big factory and a bunch of employees and the demand faded as as the short boards came in a lot of the older surfers gave up right you know they they didn't want to change to a short board so they just you know they had jobs and everything so they, they were kind of weekend surfers and this and that sure and they're the guys that paid full price for their boards where the the kids with the short boards were building them in the garages and this and that and. So it, it got real difficult, and that's when I leased my, 1974, when I leased my, my, uh, my name to Larry Gordon, Gordon Smith, and then mm-hmm. several of my employees moved down to San Diego. Mike Eaton, one of them, the primer, pr- premier shaper at the time, um, moved to San Diego and worked with Larry for the next um, almost 15 years until that was our, our agreement was for 15 years, and mm-hmm. then Mike Eaton took it and... Uh, and uh, opened his own little shop in San Diego, and but he was building eating boards and and doing other things. He was never a a real promoter, uh, you know. He was he was just a shaper. Sure. So uh, which are two different things. Yes, exactly. We've seen a lot of great shapers not build great businesses. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he he uh, the, the name pretty much faded there until I ran into Matt Calvani, and then it came back in in two thousand. So there's a pretty good period of time there where. The, there, there was not a lot of bings being built. Got but it. we, we were a, a business throughout the whole. Sure, time. sure. So what's interesting is um, people talk about that shortboard revolution, mm-hmm. but I don't think they always uh, account for the cultural revolution. Like the prior to the shortboard revolution, <laughs> it was short hair, kind of a tailored look, style, trim, all these things that came with the longboard. And the shortboard revolution, long hair, hippie, it's in not only a different aesthetic, but an entirely different ethos yeah, as yeah, well, yeah, yeah. you know? So it's almost like if you're doing one thing, you 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 can't embrace the other. I think it's much more than just the well, length of the board yeah, getting cut. Going way back, um, surfers were wearing hair long, not long hair like shoulder length, but yeah. they were wearing long enough hair that they were looked down, in the beginning, in the early 60s, they were looked down on... Uh, for being, you know, not wanting to work and just wanting to surf and Vagrants. hang out on the beach and let right. the hair grow and right. stuff like that. So, Well, let's go there, actually. Um, you started being in 1959, I guess, would have been the year. Yeah. The year before that, though, you did a six-month surf trip. Before that, well, when I was 19 years old, um, I went to Hawaii with five other guys. Six of us went to Hawaii. It was, uh, we had, we, I had just graduated high school. Um, and I just joined the life or passed the lifeguard test. We we lifeguarded that summer, saved up some money. So in the fall of of nineteen fifty five, uh, no, nineteen fifty four actually, we went to Hawaii, and then and then that, you know, we lasted uh, our money lasted till about Christmas or January, and we were running out of money. And Rick Stoner and myself were both in the Coast Guard Reserve, so we just went active in Hawaii and got to stay in Hawaii. So, so for the next two years, we were on a ship on Sand Island in, in Hawaii, got to surf Ala Moana almost every day, and we surfed the country on weekends, and when we would have a 30-day leave each year, we'd go, to, we'd go spend it in our... Where all the, our shipmates were guys from inland and stuff that weren't surfers, they would... 
go home to visit mom and stuff like that. Rick and I went out to the country in our station wagon and slept in the station wagon and surfed every day. It was great. What was it like back then? Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, you knew everybody on the beach, and um, it was just, uh, it was perfect. It really was. What it, spots were you surfing? Well, mostly sunset. Uh, we did surf Waimea. Um, uh, Makaha, when we first when we first went to the country, when we were there, 55 to 57, we first went to the country, we started surfing Makaha. And then once we were in the Coast Guard, we, we went to the North Shore and surfed uh, um, uh, Sunset, mostly. Just all, all up and down there, Haleiwa to Sunset, you know, all those all those spots. Whose boards were you riding? Velzi boards. Velzi balsa boards. That you brought uh, with, with you from That we California? brought with us from California. Okay. Uh, halfway through, I sold my Velzi board and had... Joe Quigg shaped a balsa board for me. He was living on Diamond Head, and I glassed that in the in the uh, paint locker, the forecastle of the, the ship I was on. Wow, which was pretty cool. I mean, amazing. Some, some of the some of the other shipmates were amazed that I could do all that stuff. You know. Who else was building boards in Hawaii at the time? <sighs> you know, I'm not sure. I can't really recall anybody sure. building boards. I think most of them were coming from the mainland at that time. Got it. You know, no, that early, I don't think there was anybody else. other than Quig. I know Quig. Sure. Uh, Quig. So you spend those two years in the Coast Guard in, <laughs> in the Coast Guard, yeah. Um, uh, just surfing a lot. I mean, Alamoana was our basic spot. We could get off. We could get off the ship, and you know, we had to wear uniforms to get off the ship. And we'd get in our station wagon. We'd drive to Alamoana. Halfway there, we'd get a one guy get in the back and change into his trunks. Well, the other guy was driving. Then we'd get a stoplight and we'd switch spots and <laughs> take off Hilarious. your uniform, put on your trunks. So we got to Alamona, we were ready to hit the water, and, and so we surfed till dark. Yeah. And luckily, we we made friends with a, uh, a family that had a, uh, a sailboat, a yacht, uh, in the yacht harbor, and so we got keys to the restroom. We got to, so we'd sleep in our station wagon right there. We had hot showers and we got out of the water. It was it was pretty cool. Dreamy. So, um. Tell me about the trip you did with Stoner. It was okay, six well, months across the Pacific? Well, that was, yeah, that was Rick and I that, that joined the Coast Guard. Um, and it was Rick and I that, that did all this I was telling you. And the people with the yacht, well, once we got out of the Coast Guard, we came back to California, went back to our lifeguard jobs. And, and the people that we were used to sail with, that we were their crew, they came through California saying, you know, we're going to sail around the world. You guys want to go? And so we dropped everything and, and went back to Hawaii with them, worked on the boat for a while. And that's when we took off on this uh, year-long trip. It was a year-long trip. Okay. Was, that was a year-long what trip. Was, what well, was it was two the years idea? in the Coast Guard and another year sailing. What was the idea? Where did you want, what were your well, spots their, that you wanted to Well, their idea was to sail everywhere around the South, the South Pacific and everything. So we ended up going, we sailed to, from Honolulu to Tahiti, to Papiedi and Tahiti, uh, and we stayed there for a while. We sailed, you know, to Morea and some of the other little islands around there. And, and we were there for a few months uh, in Tahiti. And then we were leaving Tahiti with them, and their mast split, just going out of the, just sail, just sailing out of Tahiti. And they decided to go back to Tahiti and have it repaired. And we had met a, a, a an Australian retired harbor pilot that had built his own boat and he was uh, in Tahiti with 
four Australian, young Australian guys as his crew. He's a bigger boat. And he had offered to take us on because we wanted to get at least to Australia, you know, yeah. for surfing. Because uh, the year before, 58, is when Greg and, and Mike Bright and Tommy Zahn and those guys uh, introduced the surfboards to Australia. So we wanted to get there, but we never made it. <laughs> we got on uh, on this yacht with the Australian, uh, and we sailed uh, to Fiji and Samoa and ended up in uh, Auckland, New Zealand. And when we were in Auckland, we met a, a couple of young guys on the dock, and we asked them about waves, and they said, oh, yeah, on the, on the Tasman side, there's, there's surf. And, and we said, well, we'd like to try it. We had our boards with us, naturally, on the, on the yacht. And so they came by the next day, and we bloated our boards on their car, and they drove us out to, you know, this is our first experience driving on the wrong side of the road. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it was a little scary to us. But we remember, it was an hour and a half drive, I guess, out to the country. And uh, remember coming down the hill to P, this beach called Piha, P-I-H-A. And uh, it looked kind of like San Onofre to us, you know. It was like head high, and, and the waves looked great. And we got there, and... So the guys that brought us uh, introduced us to uh, the surf club members on the beach because they were the lifeguard service. The surf clubs were lifeguards at the time. They unpaid, but they were, it was a club. Sure. And, uh, and, and we just said, you know, we'd really like to try our surfboards in your waves and stuff. And they, they go, oh, it's very dangerous out there. <laughs> but we'll, we'll send a... a you can do it, but we'll send a couple guys out with surf skis to to watch you and stuff and make sure you're okay. And we said, okay, whatever. And uh, and as we were paddling out, you know, there was some white water and stuff, and we were turning turtle, rolling, rolling waves and stuff. And and they did they didn't get out with their surf skis. Oh, and Rick, Rick and I got out and ended up catching um, you know eight or ten waves uh, each. And and we started screwing around because we we're showing off. They were all staying on the beach. In fact, they were wading out into the water as we were surfing. And, and we started doing some flying kickouts and go-behinds and things like that just for showing off. And they just went absolutely crazy. Wow. As we paddled in, there was, there were guys act, literally neck deep in the water going, give me a go, mate. Oh, my <laughs> They all wanted to try our boards. So uh, literally our boards never left the water there during the daylight hours for the next uh, week or week and a half at least. That's amazing. Yeah, they just went crazy, so... Wow. They, 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 it's what's amazing to me now, maybe not so much then, is that 58 to 59, 50, you know, it, it hit in Australia, but New Zealand didn't know about it. Right. You know, and they're, they're close enough, well, you would think. No. But w- without internet and without social media and all the stuff that, com- that makes the world a smaller place now, yeah. it was, it was, it took a while for. I was going to ask you that actually is how when you're mapping out that um, sailing trip, how do you even know which spots to go to? What was your awareness of waves around the world? We didn't have any. I mean, there was no magazines, right? No. no. In fact, we so, we missed the waves in Tahiti. There's great waves in Tahiti. So you didn't surf in Tahiti? No, we didn't surf oh, in Tahiti. We okay. rode we rode motorbikes around the island, but I guess uh, the the. The time we did it, it just there was no waves. Right, we didn't see waves anywhere. Or they're just reef breaks out, kind of beyond right. where you we, could see. When we when we went across to Morea, the entrance to the to to uh, the the anchorage in Morea, we we found some waves right at the entrance of the two reefs, and we we went out and caught some waves in Morea. But that okay. was it. 
Yeah. It, it was just small. So you're just completely winging it. Pine- oh, totally. We had, we had no <laughs> idea. Nobody, nobody did. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how did that trip come to an end, and where did you find yourself when you Well, we back? stayed there. We... We had a, a one-year leave from the lifeguard service. The lifeguards were going to be our permanent jobs. Oh, okay. You know, that was our, our goal was to be permanent lifeguards, you know, and never never go east of Pacific Coast Highway. Yeah. It's <laughs> um, a good plan. Yeah. Um, so we had to be back within a year. So at the end of the year, we booked on the Orient Line and uh, came back and ended up in San Francisco. My parents met us there and drove us back to the South Bay, and we went back to lifeguarding. Um, real quick detour, who are your parents? Like, to first of all, let you go to Hawaii as a young kid, let you kind of live this lifestyle. Well, it's got to be pretty unique. When I went to Hawaii, and yeah, I just graduated high school, and in those days. They were cool with it. Yeah. Did they have expectations for what they wanted you to do with your life? No. Okay. No, no. My dad, at that point, you know, he he had several jobs in in the South Bay, in Hermosa Beach, in Manhattan Beach, Redondo Beach. Uh, He ended up having a hardware store. Okay. He was pretty good with his hands, and I I think that's where I gained a little bit of my dexterity with, you know, with uh, materials and things was hanging around my dad's uh, garage with him. So you end up in the South Bay, Manhattan Beach, mm-hmm. and Manhattan Pier. And tell me about kind of the impetus of Bing Surfboards. Well, actually, a little. Can I go a little bit before Please. Bing Surfboards? Uh, in 1949 is when I really started surfing, and that's uh, I've, I've I've said this before. But uh, hanging hanging on the Manhattan Pier when I was like 13 years old, Greg Knoll was 12. Uh, I was I was hanging on the rail of the pier watching Velzy and the older guys surf on the redwood and balsa planks and and, ply, and plywood paddle boards and stuff. They didn't have this was before balsa shaped boards even. Okay. Uh, and I was you know one day I was watching him and and uh, and this guy came up and would stand beside me and we started talking. Turns out it was Greg Knoll, and we met and I was much bigger than he was then <laughs> in those days. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, and, and then Velzi saw us watching. He was the lifeguard on the pier at the time. And he said, hey, boys, I got a, I got a old redwood, small redwood balsa on the beach if you guys want to try surfing. So we went out and took it out and purled a bunch of times. And, and, and I, I remember finally catching a wave without purling and standing up and you know, going straight off to the beach, but just going, wow, this is cool. Wow. <laughs> so your and Noel's first experience surfing was together on yeah, the same board. Yeah, yeah it was, yeah. Amazing. Whether he admits it or not, it, it, sure. <laughs> he might have a different story as time goes by. <laughs> I'm sure his story will be equally as fun, though. And yeah, his, good. yeah, his will be uh, inflicted with uh, all kinds of bad language and stuff. Of course. Um, so from that point to Bing Surfboards, kind of the start of Bing Surfboards. Well, yeah. Um, when we came back from um, from our trip. Uh, and be- went back to the lifeguard service. We started because we made s- six boards, uh, d- half a dozen boards on the beach using cheese. We, we found styrofoam in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, uh, Peter Byers, a young tomato grower on, on right at Piha Beach, took us into Auckland and we found uh, styrofoam and epoxy resin and some fiberglass. And uh, we went back out and with some plywood stringers, 
glued them up and, and using a cheese grater, we shaped shaped the styrofoam and, and we glassed them. And, uh, they were a bit crude, but, uh, you know, I, I kept thinking to myself, you know, I can do this because I'd been hanging around Velzi's shop. You know, up from the 13 years old on. Okay. Uh, and I would I would uh, shape fins for him and repair boards and cut templates and on the balsa and, and all, just f- for nothing, you know, just for being around. Of course. So I had a little bit of knowledge on how how it's built. So I was impressed with the boards we built, the, or, or the fact that we could build them. So when we came back to California <coughs> and went back to our lifeguard jobs, Rick and I both. We were making some boards. At this point, we were using styrofoam because it was before polyurethane foam, even. Uh, some balsa, reshaping some balsa boards, and we made some boards out of uh, styrofoam and, and epoxy in my parents' garage. And then we finally got kicked out of that because we were making too much dust and smell and all that stuff. And, uh, and so we decided, well, let's just open a little shop. So we found a little building right on the, on the strand on the beach in, in Hermosa, and we opened that. It was a surfboards by Bing and Rick. Had a little logo made, a friend of ours drew it for us. And uh, so that, you know, we only really did that for several months, four or five months together. And then Rick was going to get, decided to get married, and he decided he better have a permanent job because he's gonna get, be responsible now. <laughs> sure. So he decided to um, uh, just, just pursue his lifeguard career. And so I bought him out and just changed it to surfboards by Bing at that time. And then eventually it became Bing Surfboards. When you're hiring for a small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And you were strictly selling surfboards or were you selling... Nothing but Got surfboards. It. We didn't even have wax. Okay. Guys went to the grocery store and bought Parawax, you know, the canning yeah. wax. Yeah. And, uh, 
Um, no, we had nothing at that in the beginning. I just I, I would build a board and and in fact I was still lifeguarding. So days I had to lifeguard, it's, uh, I'd close the stuff the shop, you know, and just go lifeguard. So it would just kind of be one board at a time one to board, one individual, board at a time. probably friends yeah. and or and other my lifeguards. Friends, Mike Bright and Sonny Vardaman opened a little glass shop okay. for, for a couple of the other guys that were starting up. It was called Surf Glass, and so I would do the shaping and and they would do the glassing. Do you remember what you paid Rick for his half of the business at no, the time? No, I don't. It was pretty cheap. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was know? pretty cheap. Well, our boards started off at $85 a piece. Okay. You know, in the beginning. Yeah. And uh, luckily, you know, because I was a lifeguard, I had a lot of lifeguard friends that bought boards from me. And, and also, I uh, got involved with the Haggerty Surf Club in Palos Verdes. And uh, a bunch of the Haggerty's members were buying boards for me. And I think the combination of all those generated the interest and really got me started. Got it. And that was 1959 is when that it started? That was 1959 and 60, yeah. Okay. Um, within a bit, a relatively short period of time, you really did become one of the most popular brands well, maybe in the world. Well, everybody liked my boards, thankfully. Okay. So they <laughs> yeah. just they worked better? Well, you know... I, I hope so, but you know, you don't know for sure. I mean, you, I, I didn't test them against other boards and okay. stuff. I just built what I thought was right. And, um, uh, it, you know, we really, in those days, it was uh, a clicky thing. The, Still the Jacobs guys, yeah. you know, would buy the Jacobs boards and the Greg Knoll boys buy the Greg Knolls and the, and the Bing guys bought Bings, and that's yeah. the way it was. In, in the early 60s, <laughs> That's all we sold. Even once I opened the sales shop, which was like 1963 or four at the latest, I opened a shop on the highway because by then Jacobs had one on the highway. Greg Knoll had one on the highway. I thought I better have one on the highway too. So I opened one on the highway. And again, we sold surfboards. Eventually we started selling uh, wax and some of uh, when, when Surfer Magazine started, they had some posters and things. We sold posters and and I had a kid making fins, and so we sold fins. And um, and dive and surf started the body glove thing, you know, in the mid '60s. And so, so we started selling uh, short johns and things like that for surfing, which which were a big boon to surfers in those days. Yeah. And uh, we, we knit and t-shirts. We would go to Penny's Towncraft and buy the t-shirts and pennies and screen them in my in my living room. My wife and I would screen them, and, and we'd sell the T-shirts in the shop with our logos on them. But we didn't have clothing and stuff in those days. And you were exclusively selling Bing surfboards? We were, oh, exclusively selling Bing surfboards, and we didn't wholesale. In fact, uh, oh, really? Yeah, for, for many years there, uh, even when the... Well, what happened is the, when the magazine came out, the East Coast started calling, saying, what's your wholesale price? Yeah. we go... We don't have a wholesale price. Yeah. You know, we've been just selling, we're selling all the boards we could build just to the local kids. Right. And both, both, both Greg and Hap, and and myself. Um, you know, we were as busy as we could be, just taking care of the local kids. And then now the East Coast wants and Texas wants to buy boards. You know, so it we find it finally worked out. And after the for like maybe the first year or so, I. In my advertisement, I said, no dealers, please. You know, hmm. I, just, I just didn't want to have, I didn't need dealers. You know? 
it's funny. That's actually a business strategy now is exclusivity. Really? You know, you, well, sure. Yeah. You did it out of just necessity. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the sport was growing or the culture was growing at a faster clip than you could probably keep up with. Oh, absolutely. But it, it is a problem, though, for businesses. It's worth discussing and hearing your story about it because scaling is difficult. People mm-hmm. make missteps with scaling all the time yeah. or they bring on uh, line of credit, you know, and yeah. then and then the yeah. business doesn't really deliver, and so then they're held accountable for that. And yeah. there's just a million ways you can go wrong. Exactly. But keeping it small yeah. and high quality oriented right. and yeah. protecting well, the brand. We is, didn't know. We didn't think ahead on those things, for sure. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> we were just by the seat of our pants, right? Running our businesses, you know. We really didn't even have a sophisticated accounting system in the beginning, and. Uh, well, as as you're um, trying to scale up and meet those demands, were you still building all the boards yourself? Yeah. yeah. Well, up until up until the the sixty two or three, I was doing all the shaping. Yeah. And then I then I hired uh, somebody to help me. Uh, uh, and um, first one was the, what they called himself the great Johnny Antoniatis. Uh, Johnny Rice actually is his name when he was in Santa Cruz. Uh, he's been a shaper forever. But he shaped with me for a little bit. And then uh, Dick Mobley came and, and shaped for me. And then and then I, I decided along the way that I really didn't like production shaping. I enjoyed um, shaping boards for friends, uh, you know, on, per order, and, and experimenting with different models and things like that or different 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 things. But I didn't like just doing the same thing day after day after day. And so I ended up mostly hiring guys to do that and finding good craftsmen to do it. So I had some some good shapers throughout the years. How do you define, or how did you at the time, define quality? We hear surfboard manufacturers talk about quality all the time, yeah. and I've yet to hear somebody give me like a real definitive, objective explanation of what well, it is you know in those days it was difficult because the materials were not always great you know the foam uh, makers uh, Clark and Walker foam both went through periods of, of having voids and, and, and tears and bad, bad spots in the foam and, and so the quality you know really varied as as the materials sophisticate got became more sophisticated and everything so okay it's it's hard to say but what, in the beginning we didn't polish rails even you know now boards are polished top and bottom you know so they're shiny like a like a new car but in those days we just did a nice gloss coat left the gloss coat filed the rails and eventually started polishing the rails but in the very beginning we just filed the rails filed the the overlap of the two gloss coats so what was the difference between a quality board versus a non-quality board? It's hard to say, you know. Uh, I think... Strength? Well, it, we were all basically, the, all the major guys were using basically the same materials. So strength was pretty equal, you know, and, unless somebody, you know, was light on the, or, or over-sanded or light on the glassing or something, you know. But, yeah. But we all, in the beginning, we all used a lot of glass, and so they were heavy, and, right. it, and naturally, um, it, it, it's kind of important now for some of the classic boards that are still around, mm-hmm. is the fact that we glassed them with more glass than they're getting today. I mean, the boards that are being built today 
won't be around 60 years from now Definitely. unless somebody puts it away and doesn't ever use it. You know? Yeah. And we should mention that your um, Serving Heritage and Culture Center has a dozen or two. A dozen. But a dozen boards on display right yeah, now from, right. from what's the, the oldest one? Uh, early 60s. Crazy. Yeah. So right at the beginning. Yeah. Early 60s, right up through uh, uh, 68, 72, 73, like with the was 73. But, I mean, so the board from 62 that's out there, do you remember that board? Do you remember no. building it? No. no. Okay. No. You, you know, there have been so many go through my my, my yeah. system. That... Sure. Um, so you were among the more most popular board builders at that time in that era. What dethroned you? I don't know if I was ever dethroned, <laughs> exactly. Well, there, uh, what it, disillusioned me was the shortboard era, and you know, even though we adapted to it pretty well, uh, in fact, very well, as boards were going shorter, uh, but it was the lack of customers. I had a big factory and a big crew and a big overhead, and we weren't getting the orders. Nobody was. Everybody went out. Jacobs went out. Greg Noll went out. Um, uh, Rick sort of hung on because he was still a lifeguard and running it on the side. Okay. Uh, and Hobie had the catamarans and things, you know. Um, but a lot, again, uh, Gordon and Smith were involved in some other things too. So everybody was hurting from it. Sure. And, and a bunch of us just gave up. And, and like, Hap Jacobs and Dewey Weber and Greg Noll went fishing, mm. commercial fish, commercial fishing. You um, didn't fully give up. You adopted or adapted your strategy to just be a license license out yeah, your brand. I basically, a license. I had an offer to move to Idaho, to Sun Valley, Idaho, and and and, and, uh, be, and uh, get into a business up there with a really good friend of mine who actually worked with me in the surfboard business. He was a salesman for me for years and years. And he was, uh, he was so good that he could, uh, he could run the factory when I went to Hawaii for promote, promotion for weeks and on end and stuff. And uh, he became just a real good friend. So I ended up going in business with him in Idaho. And I'm still in business with him in Idaho all Amazing. these years later. So. Um, tell me about that decision. That had to be hugely... Um, stressful for it you. It was difficult. I mean, to move away from the ocean, period. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got to be insane. It was difficult. Cause but, but it, you know, everything was adding. Well, I had the offer to, to move up there with him and be involved with, in his business. And, uh, you know, I could just see the handwriting on the wall. It wasn't going to be, the next few years weren't going to be good for the surfboard business in general. And, um, and, and, you know, this was the drug era and so forth and, and hippie dumb and all this and that. My kids were kind of in the early young teens, you know, 12, 12, 9, 10, and 12, that kind of thing. And I just kind of felt it was a time to get them out of here. Hmm. Of course, I didn't realize that the same problems were in the, in the mountains too. But, sure. but uh, it was a smaller town and you knew everything that was going on. And okay. So it was, uh, it was a good move. I, I don't regret it. it. It's a good family move, maybe. It's a good business move. But how did you feel as a surfer? As a surfer, I was disappointed. But uh, but I had surfed a lot, and you know, and then it wasn't long up there when we, our business up there was growing. We did well, and we both bought property in Baja. So then we'd start uh, 
this was during the windsurfing era, the sailboards. Um, uh, we we uh, went. It was a windsurfing spot that we went to, and then we found out that we could drive 10, 15 minutes down the road, dirt road, and find good waves. So okay. we came back into surfing. Got it. Um, what I'm impressed by when we look at your timeline is how quickly you pivot. You know, you assess kind of a problem, or or like for example, you decide start the business in '59. By early '60s, just three or four years in, you decide. You're not into production shaping. Yeah. So then you uh, find people who are good at that skill yeah, set yeah. and allow them to do that. And then you focus on other things. Oh, well, I would design the boards and they would build them. Right. Build. So you know what your strengths are. And then you yeah. delegate the ones that aren't yeah. your strengths. I find myself eight years into things, banging my head against a wall, trying to make things work, you know? <laughs> um, so not everybody has that skill set of delegation yeah. and also the kind of... I don't know, confidence and maybe whimsy of just pivoting and going a different direction because you started that business when you did and you were moving to Idaho in 74. Mm -hmm. That's a relatively short period of time. It to is like, now. Looking back on yeah, it, it is now. To yeah. like grow a at business. At the time, it wasn't a short period. I mean, at the time, it was, it, I just felt it was the time to do it. I mean, it, it, it I just knew it was, was the right thing to do. Yeah. It was almost like, well, I sort of had to do it because there was no other option. I mean, it wasn't, things weren't going well. But even your clarity in saying that is unique because there's a lot of business owners that will just write it to the ground. They'll mm -hmm. just be like, no, 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 I'm not giving up. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to bring on financial investment. Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy a bigger space. I'm going to grow it, you know. Well, this was still a pretty young young industry at the time. Yeah. and You know, and I had, a, I, I really had a good rapport with all my employees you know, we were basically family, you know, and it was tough to make that decision when I had to go in and tell them, hey, guys, you know, yeah. you, if you want to go to San Diego and work for Gordon and Smith, you can, but, but I'm moving to Idaho and right. closing this down. And, uh, yeah, it was tough. However, now I still, there'll be some guys here uh, this Thursday uh, that were employees and stuff back in those days, and they still call me boss. And, do they? Stuff, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Good <laughs> for you. I mean, that's a that's a attribute to yeah. your. I think I had a good. I think yeah. I they liked me. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't important. a bad boss at all. That's I awesome. wasn't hard on people. Probably, I should have been harder on some. <laughs> you know, th there were times when I would get upset because things aren't going right. You sure. Know, as far as the quality of some one step or something like that and you get pissed off and yeah. start yelling at people and things like that because you just can't stand it. Yeah, you know? of course. But uh, uh, the, other, the other employees were pretty good at calming me down when that happened. Good. <laughs> um, who is Matt Calvani to you? Matt Calvani, I just met him in the year 2000 on, on, on the beach in Baja when I still had my house down there. I had come out of the water uh, from surfing I had a dune buggy down there at the time, and I was changing my trunks by the dune buggy, and I was with another friend, and this uh, Volkswagen, rental Volkswagen bug drove up with two shortboards on it, and the two guys got out, and, and since we were the only four guys on the whole beach, you know, we started talking about the waves. It was starting to get a little windy, and, and they were thinking about going on the water, and so we were talking about what it was like, and then I noticed that this one guy was looking at me like... Like, like this, you know, out of the corner of his eye. Finally, he said, are you Bing Copeland? And I, I said, yeah, I am. 
And he said, I said, he said, I owe you money. I said, what for? He said, well, I was shaping some Bing and Rick boards for Rick Stoner's son, Jeff. Rick Stoner had passed away, and, and uh, his son was making these Bing and Rick boards just for fun, you know, and he had Matt shaping them. And, and so I said, great, you know, I'll, I'll be coming through on my way back to Idaho. I'll come through Hermosa, and maybe we'll have lunch. And he said, by the way, I'd like to... I'd really like to build your boards if you want somebody to build your boards. And I said, well, Mike Eaton's making my boards in San Diego, and uh, I would never take it away from him, uh, but I'll ask him, you know. And I did, and Mike said, hey, sure. And he was busy building uh, paddling boards at that point and um, his own models and things. So uh, he said, sure, send him down. I'll give him all the decals, logos, and stuff like that and get him started. So that's how it happened in the year 2000. And what, um, when you had those meetings with Matt, why did you feel comfortable with him? I liked him. I liked him. Uh, he was he was intelligent. Uh, I I could tell he was a good craftsman by what I saw that he had done, uh, and he had the desire. And uh, it, I just it just felt right. Hmm. It felt right, and it and it was right. Hmm. He, he has turned out to be. Uh, a fabulous we, we're partners in the name he owns the business basically but we're partners in the name and what has he done with it in the last 19 years oh he's done tremendous with it brought it totally back to where it's very popular again in fact probably like in their in Encinitas store this is another neat thing about the current era their Encinitas store probably 30% of their new board sales are to girls more and more girls surfing. Absolutely, yeah. And surfing really well. Totally. Uh, where back in my day, there was only a handful of girls on the whole coast that were worth right. anything, you know. So so this really expands your customer base when you, when you know, when, when now we're not dealing with just guys, we're dealing with guys and girls. Yeah. So. What else is different about um, the current incarnation of Bing Surfboards retail shop versus <clears throat> back in the day when it was in... South Bay? Well, more clothing, you know, where we didn't have that sort of thing in those days. Uh, you have to have some clothing nowadays to, to uh, augment the, the the cost of a retail store. You know, you can't have a, a nice retail store in a good location and just sell surfboards. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. No, it really doesn't. Yeah. So you have to have a good combination of merchandise to make the there's there's a bigger markup percentage wise in the soft goods than there is in surfboards. Right. It's um, that idea of you starting out with your first shop on the strand, just finding a space and being able to close it when you need to lifeguard, is completely unfeasible today. Oh, There's absolutely. no space available anywhere near the beach yeah. for a reasonable rent. Oh, yeah, you couldn't afford it. And you have to have just like a really solid revenue model um, to operate a business anywhere near the beach. Yet, and, and we were kind of talking before the mics went on about when I was growing up, I had to go through surf shops to become a surfer. Right. 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 Because yeah. that was the only place you could buy surfboards. That was the only right. place you could buy board shorts. Board shorts weren't available in well, Nordstrom. And or, that's also where you heard where where it was breaking, where this you know, where the good waves were, where 
the know, passive information. Said, I went to Malibu and, because in those, you know, in those days you didn't have surf reports and you didn't have uh, internet and so forth. So uh, it was word of mouth on on what was happening in different yeah. different spots, and so you you heard about them in the surf shops. Right, but now for a surf shop to exist. It has to be profit centered. Like it has, it has that it is has the motivation of the business now. It has to be. And it's unfortunately, it has to be. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think is lost? As somebody who kind of went through all of those various eras, is now a worse time? Is now a better time? What's lost on our youth? Well, it, you know, it's, it's just what it's grown into. I mean, this is just what. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's evolved to this point, and and there's no, you can't say I, I I'm I'm going to open just a, a surfboard shop. You can't do it. Yeah, it gets not. When when you go into Bing Surfboards Encinitas, do you feel that there is something lost there that isn't translated I, from yeah, the sixties? I would I would if I was walking in from the old era, but anybody that's used to the to the new era, it's just fine. Okay, you know, uh, we do have. Uh, we, you know, we have classic bings hanging in the ceiling and and, and around, and, and then the new boards on the walls. And uh, probably our shop is more surfboards than soft goods, percentage-wise, than most of the other, I would call, major surf shops. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of major surf shops that don't build boards, period. There's a lot of major surf shops that don't have a board label. They just bring in Yeah, I wouldn't call them surf ones. shops. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. What, do, what, what should we call them? Well, they're them? sporting goods, you know, that, you know I, would, I would say. Or, or uh, I don't know, but I, I guess they're surf shops. But in my mind, a surf shop is you build the boards and, 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 you, have, and you show them in your showroom. Yeah, the label on the board is the label on the yeah. building, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good Well, point. you know, but then, like on the East Coast and those places, then surf shops opened with multi-labels. You know, they would buy Bings and Hobies and Hansons and Gordon and Smith and Jacobs. And, right. And then the kids could decide what they wanted. But they there wasn't, there was very few shops back there that uh, were owned and run by the person that made the boards. Right. Um can you envision a future where all surf products, surfboards included, are purchased online? Um, that's interesting because I watch that closely with our our our, uh, our printouts of our sales, and it's growing. The online purchases of surfboards, you know, we, we do a lot of uh, you know logos and decals and and software and stuff online, but there's more and more high-end product like a surfboard. Going. You know, that's a hard thing for somebody to do. You know, I'll bring, I'll do this. Back when I didn't have dealers and the East Coast was kind of coming on, I did a mail order ad. I said, you know, that we, uh, you can mail order a Bing board. And I, it was interesting because, like, say, somebody from Cocoa Beach, one kid would take a chance and mail me 25 buck deposit or something. And, and then we build the board, and he gets it, and it's a successful transaction, you know. Um, we get five or six more orders from his buddies. So that kind of grew in different areas. It was, 
you right. know, I, that's what I wanted to pursue. Rather than having dealers, I wanted to try and promote that uh, mail mail order board. Right. To the, Where it's still direct. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I mean, really, the only kind of uh, hurdle for the online thing to take over is just shipping cost. It's expensive to ship surfboards. Right. Well, it's expensive. It's, it's more expensive to ship an individual board to somebody. Of course. Yeah. Than to send uh, six or eight boards to a shop. You know. If though, they could solve whoever Amazon's drones, whatever, yeah. solve the shipping problem, and somebody can order a bang online, um, and have it shipped to them for the same price. What would be lost in that exchange? From going into the retail store, or would there be? Uh, I think it would be wonderful because it would be a lot easier to deal with the individual than to than to deal with dealers where you have to worry about collections and this and that. Right. Um, but uh, I, I kind of think we're going to need both. Yeah. What do you think is lost in the exchange as opposed to going into a retail store and engaging with? The sales staff, or I think it depends on the retail store. You know, what uh, about for Bing surfboards specifically in Encinitas? Well, we we try to have uh, people that that know, really know our brand and our shapes. Yeah. You know, a, a salesman now has to know longboards, mid lengths, and shortboards. You know, has to be proficient in in uh, in describing them and, and and helping somebody pick one up. Yeah. So yeah. And hopefully they can ride all three. Right. That helps. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Bing, thank you so much. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And uh, initially, um, I kind of got into shaping under other brands and not my own brand because I kind of wanted to make my life simpler. Because mm. back, you know, in 2000 when I took over being um, from Mike Eaton, it was like the path of least resistance. It was like I wasn't uh, very good at self-promoting and I could just automatically pick up accounts overseas. I had like it doors opened instantly when I picked up the brand so at that time it was interesting it was just the opposite it wasn't having to, I didn't have to do anything except make the boards okay and then now with uh once you grow the brand and then you start realizing you do need to keep promoting the brand and, and fostering its legacy and creating content and things to keep it relevant then we ended up having to bring a ton of people in and now we have like 18 employees Oh my gosh! Yeah, so it kind of it it turned into the opposite, um, which is you know it's all about delegating, and uh, that's not easy to do. You know when you when you want things done a certain way, especially it's a little easier because it isn't my name, and I'm not saying that I don't I don't care about it as much as I would care about my own name if my name was on the board. Um, if anything, I care about it more because it's somebody else's legacy, and I don't want to let them down. Right. So I do as much as I possibly can to keep it keep it going 
but also I have to rely on other people. I mean, that's just a fact. And uh, and now it's more work to keep it because you don't want it to be a stodgy brand. Right. You know, like a lot of the old brands have just gotten stodgy, you know, and uh, kind of not, you know, evolved or not been relevant in the public you know, eyes. So, you know, and that's sort of their demise in a sense. Dreaming seems to carry me Right to where I want to be Wrapped up in your arms and feeling better Rivers will run Mountains will rise I love you more Than the stars in the sky I'll never treat you wrong Won't make you cry Sing your sweet love songs Won't tell you lies Wouldn't you like to go Riding with me Into tomorrow Oh, sweet fantasy That was Matt Calvani back in 2017, an excerpt from episode 190 of Surf Splendor. I've posted the entire episode uh, as a link in your show notes. You can also find it on surfsplendorpodcast.com along with photos of Bing, his boards, the old shop, the new shop, and everything else that we discussed. I also have info for this Temples of Stoke exhibit um, at Shack, which opens on Friday. You can go there to meet Bing and 25 other iconic surf shop owners, employees, sales reps, crews from Jacobs and ET Surf to Jax, Hobie, Takayama, and the aforementioned Dive and Surf. Shack.org is where you get the info. We have three more of these episodes uh, from this series that I'll be releasing every other Wednesday, so over the next six weeks, intermixed with our regular programming. Uh, Speaking of which, Chaz gets back from Europe tomorrow, so I'll get together with him to record The Grit, hopefully this Friday, and then Scott Bass for Spit next week on Tuesday. So look forward to those things, and then back to Surf Splendor on Wednesday. So until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred I love you, girl. Make a style of you, girl.